What what I want to do then for the rest of this morning is is kind of pick up on those themes that we saw in the video and and take a look at two things. One, what is our relationship to the law? And then two, what is our standing? What's the righteousness that we have? So to start, I thought we'd look at a passage in, uh, in Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, and then it'll go into chapter 3. And you'll see here our verse, Galatians 2.20, that we discovered last night. But we're going to look at it from the message translation. So this is how Eugene Peterson has paraphrased this passage. He begins in 19. He says, what actually took place is this. I tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. That's essentially what the law system was all about. It was a system of blessing and curses, where if you performed well, God blessed you. And if you didn't perform well, then you were cursed. There was no in-between. It was a system of, of based on your works and your performance. And so Paul saying, I tried to do my best, but it didn't work. So I quit being a lawman so I could be God's man. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. And I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. When he died, I died. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion and I'm no longer driven to impress God. Well, hold on. Are, are, I mean, I understand what he's saying. That he's no longer driven to impress other people. But, but no longer driven to impress God? Has he maybe gone too far, maybe? Well, verse 21, or he goes on in verse 20. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I'm not going to go back on that. Is it not clear that to go back on that old rule-keeping, peer-pleasing religion would be an abandonment of everything personal and free in my relationship with God? I refuse to do that, to repudiate God's grace. A living relationship with God could not come, or if a living relationship with God could come by rule-keeping, then Christ died unnecessarily. The whole reason he's no longer driven to please God and impress God is because you can't get any more pleasing. You can't get any more loved than acceptable. But to think that, to go back to that, is basically to say, Christ, what you did on the cross wasn't enough. That I'm going to add to it, or I'm going to complete it. And so, and then beginning in chapter 3, he says, you crazy Galatians, you fools, or my personal favorite in the J.B. Phillips, you dear idiots. Who has bewitched you? Did someone put a hex on you? Have you taken leave of your senses? Something crazy has happened. For it's obvious that you have no longer had the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. His sacrifice on the cross was clearly set before you, uh, was certainly set before you clearly enough. So obviously you know about the cross. It was there, but you've gone mad. You've gone absolutely crazy. Now, Paul, you know, tell me what you really think about these people. But this is what he's saying to them. He asked me a question. Let me put this question to you. How did your new life begin? Was it by working your heads off to please God? Or was it by responding to God's message to you? And everybody in the evangelical church says, Oh no, we're saved by faith. We understand that. But what's happened is we're saved by faith, but the moment you're saved, guess what's handed to you? The list of rules that you now need to perform. So come to Jesus just as you are, but don't stay that way. Here are now the rules to change you. 
here are the rules that you need to live by. You need to do this, you need to do that. You got to go to this church, you got to read this Bible, you got to give this amount, you got to dress this way, you got to sing these songs, you got to talk this way, you got to act this way. And it's all this list of rules now. Well, Paul says, are you going to continue this craziness? For only crazy people would think that they could complete by their own efforts what was begun by God. If you weren't smart enough or strong enough to begin it, how do you suppose you could perfect it? The whole idea of now going back to the law to somehow improve, keep, or perfect what God started is absolutely ridiculous. And our churches are plagued with it. We're absolutely plagued with this mindset and this approach to living. He goes on in verse 11, says, The obvious impossibility of carrying out such a moral program should make it plain that no one could sustain a relationship with God that way. I, I always just cringe and laugh and find it ridiculous that we want to follow the Sermon on the Mount as a way to live. If that's the case, then the church today should be a amputee ward. I mean, he says, if your hand causes you to sin, what's the solution? Cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, what's the solution? So we would be a bunch of blind amputees in the church praising God if that's what the Sermon on the Mount was for. But the Sermon on the Mount was to show us the impossibility of carrying out such a way of life. That you simply can't do it. No matter how hard you strive, no matter how hard you work, you'll never measure up to it. The person who lives in right relationship with God does it by embracing what God arranges for him. Doing things for God is the opposite of entering into what God does for you. Did you hear that? Let me say that again. Doing things for God is the opposite of entering into what God does for you. And when we start living by rules, when we start living by formulas, when we start living by guidelines and spiritual principles, we are now living by this mindset of doing stuff for God and not entering into what God has done for us. So Habakkuk had it right. The person who believes God is set right by God, and that's the real life. Yes? Sure, you still believe that all of Scripture is still profitable for us today. Absolutely. Absolutely. But you have to, you have to discern what Scripture is saying. So, for example, in Leviticus, it instructs the people to offer lamb sacrifices if they sin. So, do we offer lamb sacrifices? Because we can rightly discern the Scriptures. So we have to understand there's a distinction between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And if we don't understand that distinction, then we will blend the two. And when you mix the two, you ruin both. So there's a New Covenant and an Old Covenant. And we have to rightly discern between the two. Hence the reason we're free to eat pork. We're free to wear mixed fibers. All that's commanded against in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant... But in the New Covenant, we don't have those. So, you're right. All Scripture is profitable. Absolutely. There's great types. There's great pictures. There's great uh, lessons to learn. But we have to understand, who is that written to and why was it written for? And if you understand that and understand the New Covenant versus the Old Covenant, and we're not under the Old, but under the New, then you can rightly discern the two. It's the same thing with Jesus. And even in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to give them their full meaning. Yeah, to, to, to finally be the first person in all of history to fulfill it, to keep it, to show us what it's like. Yeah. What you were saying is that um, we can be more loved by God than we are. 
but can God approve of us more than he already does? Yeah, that's, that's the reality is he can't love you, accept you anymore, but he also can't love you and accept you any less. Because the love and acceptance that he has for you is not based on what you do or don't do, as we'll see in a minute. So he, if, if someone else does, um, you know, um, witnessing to other mm-hmm. things like that, mm-hmm. um, God then is not disappointed in us if we don't do it? No, he, the only thing, you can grieve God, you can sad, sadden God, and, and you can please God in the sense that He's happy for you, much like with your children. Your children, if they act well, you'll be pleased with them. If they don't act well, if they make poor choices, then you'll be sad. But do you love them and accept them any less? Not at all. And so yet you can make God, you know, bring a smile to His face per se, and you can make Him sad, but how you do that isn't even based on what you do, but rather based on whether or not you trusted Him or not. You read Hebrews 11, and it says there that the men of old gained approval by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So really, many Christians ask the question, how, how, how? And I say, well, you're a bit dyslexic, because it's not a how, it's a who. It's who's doing it, and it's about faith that matters. So the thing about God's law, and I want you to see, if you turn the next page in your in your syllabus there, God's holy and perfect law was never intended to make us righteous. It was never even intended to be a, a guidebook for you and I as how to live. You see, look what, um, look what Paul, or sorry, in Isaiah it says about this. God hates self-generated righteousness. It's his filthy rags. It makes him sick. If the law was there to make us righteous, it would be self-generated. And so we would be disgusting God with it. In uh, Galatians 3, 10, 11, this is the authorized translation of what we read. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. See, what I see happening today is we pick and choose certain things. So we're not under the shellfish and the pork law, and we're not under the mixed fiber law, but we're on other kind, under other kinds of laws. And we take other laws or other principles and other things and we port them into the new covenant. And Paul, in writing this letter to the Galatians, this is exactly what they were doing. They were taking parts of the law and trying to bring it into the new covenant. And he says, don't you get it? If you're gonna, if you're gonna do that, then cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the law. Meaning it's not, I can't just keep one or two, three, two or three things from the, the old covenant. I've got to keep all 613 things. And then don't you realize that you are cursed because if you don't do all 613 things perfectly all the time, then you get cursed. That's how it works. So clearly, obviously, without any doubt, no one is justified made righteous, made acceptable, more pleasing before God by the law, by your performance. And then if you had any doubt, Romans 3.20, no one would be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Even if there was somebody who could, and there was nobody who could, but even if there was somebody who could keep the law from birth onwards and do it all right, perfectly all the time, they still would not be declared righteous. They would still not be declared right, acceptable. Yes. What about rewards in heaven? There are rewards in heaven. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and the thing about the rewards is, 
It's not about the rewards. Uh, C.S. Lewis had a great quote about that. He said about how uh, in marriage, um, when you love somebody, uh, you get to then marry them. And marriage is the reward of that love. Uh, and then you get everything with that. So you get to, you know, be with them. You get to have, you know, intimacy with them, sexual union with them, and so forth. That's all part of the marriage union. And he says, if you, if you do that, if you marry the person for all those things, that's a bit like a mercenary. So marrying someone for love, you get the reward of all those things. Uh, another way to think of it is a, um, a general. If a general goes to fight a war in order to get promoted, He's a bit of a mercenary then. But if he goes and he fights the war and he gets promoted because he wins, well, that's just a natural reward. So the general isn't looking to get promoted, but that will happen. Instead, he's looking to do what, what his job is. So you're right. There are rewards for you and I, but the reward is just a natural product. It's not what we're striving and looking after. So there's nothing wrong with rewards, but the rewards don't change or improve your value or worth. In any in any way whatsoever. Yes, you had a, you had a question. Yeah, with um, like with children, we're not going to teach them that you get right with God and that you get to go to heaven because of doing good things. But still, with children, you do teach them right and wrong. Right? Absolutely, yeah. And and that. That's right. And and um, sometimes we take the children thing too far, though, with Christians. And the reason we do it with children is because they're mentally developing. Uh, baby Christians, though, you don't treat them like ch- little children in that sense. Um, you you teach the the um, baby Christians how to be the adults, and they have, you know, assuming they're not little children, they have now the understanding of how to uh, uh, process and understand these things. See, the temptation we is for little baby Christians, we'll give them the rule book to follow, but we'll see in a little bit when you do that, you're actually setting them up for failure. Let's uh, let's look and see that. So there's three purposes for God's law, and none of them are meant to be the rule book to life. None of them are meant to be the the guidebook and the principles by which we follow. So let's take a look at it. the first one in Romans three twenty and verse the second part of it. So the first part, no one be declared righteous through the works of the law. It's through the law that we become conscious of sin, that we become aware of sin. Uh, a couple years ago in Ontario, we introduced a new law that said that while you're driving a car, there is to be no more texting, no more phoning, no more messing around with anything else. So if you're driving a car, you can't be shaving, you know, can't be eating, you can't be brushing your hair while talking to mom on the phone. So that's now outlawed, right? So when you're coming in today, I hope you weren't doing that. Um, now, is it a good idea to do all that while driving? No, not a good idea at all. It's a very bad idea. But two years ago, before the law came into place, it wasn't illegal. Does that mean, you know, before the law came in, it was a good idea to do it? No, it was still a bad idea. But the moment the law came in, now we knew. If you had any doubt, this is a bad idea. And we knew what was right or wrong. And that's what the law had done. It let us know for once and for all, so there is no longer any doubt what was good and what was evil. It codified what was good and what was evil. 
Because people would, you know, they would find all kinds of excuses. They would find all kinds of ways to justify. You even see it today. Well, you know, under these circumstances, in this case, it's okay, and so forth. And and God's law said, let's make it abundantly clear. This is right, this is wrong. This is sin, this is not. Look what Paul says in Romans 7. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. So because the law said not to covet, he understood, oh, coveting is wrong. Coveting is sin. Now I know what's right. Now I know what's wrong. So the very first purpose of the law was simply just to make you and I aware of sin. It was to define sin. The word sin really is an archery term. It means to miss the mark. And the mark was who? was God. I mean, the, really, if you look at the Ten Commandments, in many ways, you see the character of God. He's not a murderer. He's not a thief. He's not a liar. He's not an adulterer. Hence the reason the instruction is, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery. Because that's not my character. It's not who I am. And so the, the target was live like who? Like God. And when you fail, when you miss that mark, whether it be, you know, by one inch or by a country mile, it doesn't matter. I, I kind of laugh at times where people think, well, I'm really close to it. It's sort of, I think about the, the, you know, the illustration of the guy who's running towards the bus and he misses the bus by 30 seconds. And then 15 minutes later, the guy comes running up also. Did I get the bus? Is the bus come yet? Oh man, you missed it by 15 minutes. You are such a fool. I, I just missed it by 30 seconds. I am so much better off than you are. It doesn't matter if you missed the bus by 30 seconds or by 15 minutes or by two hours. If you miss the bus, you miss the bus. And so the same thing here with sin. If you miss the mark, you miss the mark. The law was just to let us know what the mark was. What was sin? What was the target? Does that make sense? Yeah. I was going to say that really, in, a sense, in essence, the law is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It, before the, before the, they ate of the tree, mm-hmm. they had life. That's right. So the tree of knowledge of good and evil... Essentially, what man chose was, when he ate from that tree, he chose to follow a rule book of principles to live and find life. So, what God did, which is just incredible to me, he says, okay, this is what you want, here it is, have at her. Here is the rule book. So, you have no doubt anymore, this is the rule book, follow it now. Now, as people who who want to do good, who want to avoid evil, who want to honor God and obey God. And now we know, here's the rule book, here's the formula. What would you expect to happen to the number of sins and transgressions? Would it go up or down? If you want to do good and you now know what's good, what would you expect to happen to them? It would go down. That's what I would expect. But look what Romans 5.20 says. The law was added... So that the trespass would increase. Now, I share this verse often, and what I see people do is they madly grab their Bible and they start flipping through their Bible to make sure that this isn't some crazy paraphrase. This is no paraphrase. This is just out of your normal translations. So why did God add the law? 
according to this verse. To increase trespasses. It's pretty simple if it's in the verse, I guess, right? (laughs) Who are we to judge? Um, Let's get something straight. Does God hate sin? Okay, God hates sin. We're all agreed on that. Why then would God add the law to make what He hates worse? Maybe sins isn't the biggest deal. Maybe sins isn't the biggest problem. Maybe He's not even afraid of sin. I think we in the church are afraid of sin. But God's not. God's not afraid of sin one bit. Not at all. And so what He does is He adds the law so the trespass might increase in order that we could discover what is the issue. What is the problem? Look what Paul says in Romans 7 verse 5. When we were controlled by the flesh, the sinful passions were aroused by the law. Now, this is the Mosaic Law, in particular, the Ten Commandments. He's going to show us that. In fact, verse 7, he's talking about, Thou shalt not covet, one of the big ten. But for you and I, it's basically any kind of law system. Remember Lee going through that video with Carolyn, and how she discovered what her law system was. All the things that she was trying to do to measure up to herself, to mom, to her husband, and so forth. That's the law system. And what this law system does is it arouses sinful passions. It doesn't put them to sleep. It doesn't overcome them. It stirs them up and makes it worse. So in verse 8, sin, seizing opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. Do you see the foolishness that, that takes place when we try to then take the law and give it either to baby Christians or mature Christians as a way to live. What have we done? We've set them up to fail. We've set them up to be miserable. Turn in your Bibles to to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And beginning in verse 5, Paul says, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, wanting to lay down the rules and the principles by which we are to live this Christian life. Another formula for success. Even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they are making confident assertions. They have no idea. They don't realize that when you start handing the law out to people, you're killing them. In 2 Corinthians 3, chapter, chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, uh, and 7 and 8 onwards, Paul says that the law is a ministry of condemnation and it's a minister of death. So when we give rules and principles and laws, regardless whether it came from the old covenant or what, when you start laying down these laws, as this is what you need to do to live in the sense of trying to uh, please God and earn favor with God and, and it just even as a way to live, all you're doing is you're setting them up for failure. You are administering to them death and condemnation. Because the law had a specific purpose. See, Paul goes on to say, Verse 8, but we know the law is good. The law is wonderful. I'm not against the law. I love the law if one uses it lawfully. 
realizing the fact, it says in verse 9, the law is not made for a righteous person. It's not made for the believer, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers or murderers and so forth. The law is meant for the unbeliever. The reason being is the purpose of the law is to stir up sin, making an increase in order to reveal us as the problem, in order to reveal the sinfulness of man. That we would see it. And so it's aimed at the unbeliever to show to him how far short he falls of God and how he needs to be rescued. So it's meant strictly for the unbeliever to expose the problem. It's sort of like if I have a glass of water and in that glass of water has all kinds of sediment, all kinds of junk, and that sediment has sunk to the bottom. And and I'm ready to now drink that water and you come up and say, oh, don't drink that. There's all kinds of stuff in it. What do you mean? It looks good to me. I just don't, I don't see the stuff at the bottom. So you come and you bring a spoon, you put the spoon in the water and you stir up the water. What else do you stir up? All the sediment. And suddenly that water doesn't look so good. Am I going to drink it now? No. Now, did the spoon make the water dirty? No. It just exposed what was already in the water. In the same way, with the law, the law is the spoon. It didn't make us sinful. It exposed the sinfulness of man. That's what the Sermon on the Mount was for. That's what the Ten Commandments were for. It was to expose to you and I the sinfulness and the need for salvation. So, the third purpose of the law, in Galatians 3, 24 and 25, Therefore the law has become our tutor, our child guide, to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified, literally made righteous and acceptable, by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under the child guide. We're no longer under the tutor. We're no longer under the law. So what happens now is the law is the child guide to lead us to Christ for righteousness. You see, what the law does is it frustrates you. It constantly points out your faults. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. You're failing here. You're not good enough there. And you continue to be just shown all the messes and misery that you are. And that's frustrating. That's annoying. And eventually you come to the conclusion there's got to be a different way. And that's where Jesus says, Amen! Here I am. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And so there is another way. So let me illustrate then what is the the believer's relationship now with the law. So if the law leads us to Christ for righteousness, we're no longer under the tutor, what does that mean? Well, look at what Paul says in Romans 7. He says, Or do you not know, brethren, and I'm speaking to those who know the law. He's addressing now the issue of the law, and he's talking to people who love the law, who have a strong affinity towards the law. And he says that the law has jurisdiction or dominion or authority over a person as long as he lives. Right? So if, you know, if um, for you and I, we are under the laws of the land of Canada until we die. But the moment we die, then how much can the law touch us? It can't. Right? So in verses 2 and 3, Paul then is going to use an illustration based on this law, and he's going to use the marriage relationship. Now, Paul's not breaking up into, or breaking off into a sermon on marriage. That's not the point here. Instead, what he's simply doing is he is uh, going to use the marriage relationship to illustrate the connection, the relationship we have with the law. 
So in verse 2, For the married woman is bound by law to the husband, to her husband while he's living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So we have husband and wife, and how long are they together? Till death do us part. Verse 3, So then, if while her husband's living, she's joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so she is not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. Husband and wife are married, they're together. If she were to go and join, himself, join herself to another man while he's living, it's adultery. But if he dies and she's joined to another man, then it's okay. No problem. That's the background. That's the illustration. Verse 4 is the application of that illustration. And verse 4 is the one that counts. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Meaning, when Christ died on that cross, you died on that cross, and you died to who? To the law. Or to what? To the law. So that you might be joined to another. Well, who's that? To him who is raised from the dead. That's Jesus. In order that we might bear fruit for God. To illustrate this, I'm going to use some characters. How many people recognize these guys? Who are these guys? We got Linus. And who's this? Peppermint Patty. So Peppermint Patty and Lucy. Charlie Brown's going to make an appearance later on in the skit, so don't worry. Um, but uh, but these two are going to play a bit of a, a, a role play or, or a bit of a skit for us where Peppermint Patty is going to play the role of us and Linus is going to play the role of Mr. Law. So I want you to imagine we're young and we're in university or college and we, we look across the courtyard and we see Mr. Law. And Mr. Law is Mr. Perfect. He is Mr. Dreamboat. Because he is perfect. He is holy. He is righteous. He is good. There is nothing wrong with him. And we begin to think, wow, if I could just be with him, he could show me how to live. He could show me how to operate. And you know what? Then I could be just like him. Then I could be just perfect like him. And so we go across the courtyard, introduce ourselves, and before long, we are now joined to and married to the law. And we think, this is great. I got Mr. Perfect as a husband. It can't go wrong from here. But what do you notice is in Mr. Law's hand? What do you think is written on that paper? The rules. If it, in terms of the Old Testament, it would be all 613 rules. So if we were to unroll that, it would probably go all the way to the back of the room and maybe back. But it's more than that. It could be any kind of rule system that you've adopted. Be it culturally, be it based on your family, based on your church, any kind of law system that we've incorporated into our life. That's essentially what's written on here. Well, what do you notice in our hand? Another piece of paper, and this becomes our to-do list. And it looks a lot like what's written on that piece of paper. And so Mr. Law goes off to work. And he gives to us now a to-do list of ten things to do. And we love the law. We love him. We want to be perfect like him. We want to do our best to measure up to him. And so we strive and we get nine of the ten things done. Ninety percent. That's pretty good. If I got ninety percent in school, I was happy. I don't know about you, but I was tickled. And so we got nine of the ten things done. We're all proud and excited. Can't wait for Mr. Law to come home. And he does. And then what does he say? What happened? What went wrong? 
I gave you ten things, right? Let me see the list. One, two. Yeah, there's ten things on this list, and you failed. Well, I, I got I got nine done, and I got the other one half done. I was almost there. Yeah, but almost doesn't <laughs> count here. It's pass fail. You see, what does Mr. Law expect of you and I? Perfection, all the time. That's what he expects. So we look. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Give me another chance. I'll do better next time. And so we begin to study on time management skills and, and read books and go to conferences and courses so that we can be better and work harder. And we go to bed early so we can get up uh, early. And then we realize, you know what, I'll get up early and I'll stay up late. So it gives me more time to do stuff. And we're all ready now. And he gives us now a list of a hundred things to do. And now we do our best to follow all 100 things. We get 99 of them done. In fact, we even get three quarters of the other one done. So we're 99 and three quarters done. And Mr. Law comes home and what does he say? You are a total failure. You blew it. But I got so close. No, you failed. You didn't do it. Well, what kind of relationship do you think these two have now? Not so pleasant. The smiles are gone. And maybe she begins to pray something like this. Lord, um, uh, my husband is um, driving me crazy. Uh, could you find a way to take him home maybe? Um, I'm, I'm miserable in this relationship. It's just, this isn't working, Lord. Uh, can you somehow, uh, up to you, you know, your discretion, but just take him home. But the thing about the law, it may be really old, thousands of years old. But it's not going anywhere. Remember what Jesus said about the law? I have not come to abolish the law, that not a single jot or tittle shall pass in this age or the one to come. The law is not going anywhere. The law is healthy. But the other problem with the law, well, not really. The problem is not the law. The law is holy, righteous, perfect, and good. The problem is who? Us. We're the problem. Because although the law is perfect, we're anything but. This is the original odd couple. It just doesn't work. And so Mr. Law is not going anywhere. And so our prayers begin to change and they sound more like this. Lord, I see that my husband's not going home. So will you take me home? Because I am so tired of failing. I am so tired of not measuring up. I am so tired of not being good enough. So I don't care whether you rapture a whole church or you just kill me. It's up to you again. But just, Lord, I want to go home because I'm tired of this relationship. Have you experienced that fatigue and frustration of trying, failing, rededicating only to fail some more? And it's exhausting. The problem is if Jesus came in and swooped us up, what would he be committing? Adultery. Because who are we joined to? To the law. So he has another solution. Romans 7, 4. Therefore, my brethren, you were made to die to the law, through the body of Christ. So what Christ does is he crucifies you and I. He buries us. We're now no longer married to the law. But then he raises us up in order to join himself to us so that we can be now married to who? Now, just so we're clear, Charlie Brown is not my concept of God, okay? So there's no doubt about that. Don't be walking around thinking, he's got a weird concept. That's not it. He's just playing the part, playing the role, okay? 
Now, what do you notice different about this relationship than the one we had with Mr. Law? No lists. The rules are gone. The reason being is I've got something far better than the lists. I've got Jesus. I've got Him. You see, here's the problem with the law. It can tell me what to do, but it gives me no power to do it. I could, I, I love the Olympics, and I remember watching the Olympics, and, and I'll watch any Olympic sport, it doesn't matter, even show jumping, and, um, but I, I'll watch them all, and, and diving, you watch these divers do all these incredible twists and flips and triple sow cows, and I might be mixing my sports, but they, they do all these crazy things, and then they enter the water without a splash. If we were to take that and detail it step by step, every single move, And then say, okay, I want you, here's the list, I want you to do the exact same move that this gold-winning gold winning dive uh, achieved. Well, could you do it? Yeah, that cannonball, uh, belly flop. Uh, does that count for anything? What's the level of difficulty on that one? Uh, that's it. We can't do it. Why not? I, we've given you the list. We've told you all the steps. What are you lacking? A small thing called talent. <laughs> the ability to pull it off. The thing with the law is it gives me the list of rules, but it can't lift a single finger to help me do it because it's got no finger to lift. It's just rules on a page. But Jesus is a person. And so he comes to live in me and he's got the fingers to do it now. He's got the power. And so I don't need the rule book because who do I got? I've got Jesus. But if I'm looking to the rule book, who am I not looking to? I'm not looking to Jesus. And I don't want a relationship with words on a paper. I want a relationship with the real deal. With the author. So there's no need for the list anymore. What else do you notice is different? Big smiles. Huge ear-to-ear -ear grins. Because you would almost say they're in love with one another. Because they treat each other well. What else is different? There's a major difference in this picture. It's Lucy. Remember, we had Peppermint Patty. But now we've got Lucy. You see, God didn't raise Peppermint Patty from the grave. He didn't raise your old person. The old you, your old man, is dead and buried and gone because therefore if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. You and I are now a Lucy. We're someone new. We're someone different. You weren't. You're not the same person you were before. And now you're you're Lucy, and you're married and joined to Jesus, a whole new person. Now, what does Jesus expect from you and I? If the law expects perfection, what does Jesus expect for you and I? Just to do your best. Perfection, but He's already given it. Perfection, but He's already given it. Matthew five forty eight. Be perfect. That's that's the goal. But what's so great about the New Covenant is rather than me trying to achieve that perfection, He gives it to us as a gift that I'm to receive. You see, He's holy and perfect way up here. I'm way down here. He doesn't lower the standards to let me in. He can't. He's holy. If He lowered the standard, He would no longer be holy. So what He does is He raises you and I up in order that we can enter in. He gives to us almost as our wedding gift the gift of righteousness and perfection. That's what's given to you and I. 
And so now we're in this relationship with Jesus and we begin to have questions such as, well, how can I please Him? How can I show love to Him? And He says to us, I want you to trust Me. And right now, I want you to get to know My voice and hear from Me and and rely upon Me. That's what I'm looking for. Okay, okay, that sounds good. But the problem with faith is I don't have that knowledge that, well, I've done this, check it off, mission accomplished sort of thing. And so I begin to wonder, am I really pleasing to Him? Am I really doing enough? Is He really happy with me? And so who do we go to to find out how to please Jesus? We go to the law. And we try to follow the law. Am I giving enough? Am I, op- am I doing enough with my time? Am I working hard enough? Am I reading the right books? Am I going to the right church? And we look to all these rules and systems to say, am I doing enough? And all the while, what are we committing? Adultery. Because we're not joined to the law, we're joined to Christ, but we're cheating on Christ, going to the law, trying to please Him. But then here's the kicker. What does the law do? Does it reduce sin? It increases it. It stirs it up. So in trying to please Jesus, I go to the law, which increases sin, which causes me to fail. So I run back to Jesus, ask for forgiveness, and then show how sincere I am with the forgiveness. I come back to the law to try harder, only to fail, and then I run back. And I'm in this downward spiral. And Jesus the whole time is saying, quit with the law. You're free. You're absolutely free from it. We've got Jesus. You can't get anything better. If I were to give you, if I wanted you to come to my house after today, I have two options. I can give you a list of turn-by-turn directions, or I could just get a ride home with you, and I could tell you each turn as we go. What's better, the list or me? Me. Well, do I need the list when I've got Jesus? If you want to know what you're supposed to do, then who should you ask? Jesus. And that's hard because that requires faith. That requires dependence. The the rule book is easy. It's just there. I just follow it. But there's nothing in it with Jesus. And anytime you live in this way, it's wood, hay, and stubble. Because whatever is not of faith does not please God. Uh, turn a couple pages. You'll see a, a list of law versus grace. And law is all about what you need to do. Whereas grace is about what God has done. Law is going to emphasize what man needs to do, whereas grace is emphasizing what God is doing. Not just in the past, but what God is doing today in through you and I. Law lives out of the flesh and the self-life, where grace lives out of the spirit and the Christ life. Law draws upon man's resources, grace draws upon God's resources. Law deals with external regulations, rules, and standards, whereas grace deals with the inner heart attitude. Law's primary focus is ought-tos, shoulds, have-tos, and musts, but grace's primary focus is want-tos. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean if I go to Him and I delight myself in Him, I'm going to have a nice shiny red Ferrari in my driveway when I get home. What it means is as I go to Him and as I talk with Him and as I commune with Him, He will give me the desires. And He'll place those desires where? In my heart. So now, I want to love people. I want to honor people. I don't want to murder. I don't want to steal. I don't want to do those things. I want what's right. Because I have want to. Whereas before, it was an external regulation and rules imposed upon me. 
But now I have an inner desire to do what's right. Law creates duty, bondage, and obligation where grace creates freedom. Law lives from the outside in where grace is the inside out. Law declares do in order to be. Grace says you are. Therefore do. You are saints. You are children of God. Now live that way. Law produces defeat, guilt, and condemnation. And I'd add to that list death. That's what the law will do. It will kill you. It will only produce death. That's it. It cannot produce life. So Galatians 3 says, If there was a law that could produce life, then Christ was unnecessary. But the law can't produce life. Whereas grace produces victory, security, and acceptance. Again, there's a great verse in Titus 2, verses 11 and 12. It says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That's salvation. We understand that part. And again, then we slip back into now looking to the law as the how to live now. But the rest of the verse, in verse 12 goes on to say, So grace has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And grace is now teaching us to live upright, holy, and pleasing lives. It's grace that teaches that, not law. Law's operating principle is try harder, work, and effort, where grace is receive, trust, abide, and rest. Jesus said, Come unto me, all that are wearied and heavy laden, and I will give you a long list of rules to follow. I will give you rest. I will give you rest. That's what He's come to give us. So, Romans 6.14, For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Meaning, if I am under law, what will master me? Sin. Sin will master you. And and Charles Swindoll has a great illustration with this. He says, if I give you a glass of pure water, that's that's one of that's life to you. But if I put some arsenic in that water, just a little bit of arsenic, not much. How many people want that glass of water now? It may be ninety nine percent water, only one percent arsenic. But now the whole glass is what poison. If you try to mix law and grace, you poison grace. And then the sad reality is you, you water down the law so the law can't do its purpose, which is to drive the unbeliever to Jesus. Don't mix the two. It never works. It doesn't produce a sort of grace. It just produces death nonetheless. But now, having died to what once bound us, we've been released from the law. So died to the law, we're now free from the law so that we serve. We still serve. But now in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. We don't follow the rule book. We follow Jesus, a person. Come follow me. Um, is it safe to say, by reading a verse here in Hosea that says, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Like that was in the Old Testament. Um, is it safe to say that it's always been about the grace and faith rather mm-hmm. than the law. Mm-hmm. Think of how was Abraham saved? There was no law at the time. And then Romans 4, where it says Abraham was saved by faith, he talks about David. Well, David was under the law, but it says David was saved by faith. So it's always been faith. It's always been this way. It wasn't about the law. The law was not meant to save us. The law was meant to show us the impossibility of saving us. So why would you go back to it now? I mean, there's a proverb, or it's I think it's a proverb about how a dog goes back to his vomit. That's an ugly picture, but when we're going back to the law, that's what you're doing. 
But the reason we do it is because the law is safe. I am not picking on police officers here, just so we're clear and I don't get a ticket uh, or arrested. But this Tim Hortons would be the safest place in Canada because there's lots of police officers. Nobody's going to walk in and steal it or rob anything from it, right? And the law feels safe. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. And I've done it, check. Mission accomplished. You gave me 10 things to do, I did all 10 things. I'm doing well. The law feels safe to us. We're drawn to it. But the reality is it will kill you. Faith is not easy. Faith is hard. Because it means you have to go to Him, you have to talk to Him, you have to hear from Him, and then you've got to step out in faith trusting that He's going to do it through you. That's not easy. But that's what He's called us to. So for some of us, it's time to graduate from law school and get on with living. Be done with the law. Discover Jesus and life in Him. This message was recorded by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know Jesus deeper and disciple Christians to experience life in Him through the message of the cross. For more information about our ministry, upcoming courses and events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www.crosswaystolife.org.